This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. May God bless the preaching of his holy word and fill us with eternal hope today. In 1678, John Bunyan wrote one of the best-selling books of all time, Pilgrim's Progress, originally titled, The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to that which is to come. Many of you know the story. It's an allegorical story of a man named Christian who has a great burden on his back. And Christian is trying to get this burden off and finding it impossible until he climbs a hill and he looks at the cross when miraculously the burden of his sin and guilt unstraps itself, rolls down the hill into a tomb, never to be seen again. And often as I think about Bunyan's work and the story of Christian and his salvation, I often think, what a great ending. I mean, what a great ending to a book, how the burden was removed. And then I remember that is only the beginning of the story. In the words of John Bunyan, it was only the beginning of the journey, but it was a good beginning. And then the battle begins. That's the next chapter after Christian is saved. And really what we find this whole story is about is about Christian doing battle with his own desires, with evil and demonic forces, with discouragement and despair, fighting to grasp onto hope. We find Christian battling worldliness, needing the help of faithful friends, battling the deceiver and the accuser, battling his own doubts, finding God's preserving grace through the trials of this life time and time again. And it makes sense as you read the book that John Bunyan wrote the book while imprisoned. 
away from his family, persecuted for his faith. He understood that this life and this earth are filled with trials and suffering and evil and sin and injustice. And yet he also understood that there was something better coming. There was somewhere that Christian was going to. He was on a journey and there was an end in sight. There was something better that we were created for. There's a new reality that has everything good about this earth and then some and none of the bad of this earth. Our text today gives us hope this morning because it reminds us during this present darkness that God has a future for you brighter than you could ever imagine. There's a future for you brighter than you could ever imagine. In the midst of darkness, we need to remember Things will not always be this way. There is something better coming. And what gets us to this glorious truth in our text from Jesus is a ridiculous hypothetical question from the Sadducees. So point number one, we have to walk through their question. Point number one, a ridiculous question. A ridiculous question, verse 18 it says, and the Sadducees came to him. Couple of things it's helpful to know about the Sadducees to understand what's going on here in our text. The Sadducees were a small group of wealthy priestly families. In contrast to the Pharisees who added all these extra biblical rules, the Sadducees rejected these rules and they believed that only the first five books of the Bible are the word of God. That uh, They believe only really in the Mosaic law. And in verse 18, Mark gives us this very important detail about the Sadducees. Look at verse 18, who say that there is no resurrection. So when they come to Jesus with this question about the resurrection, it's not a sincere question. They really don't want to know who this woman is going to be married to in heaven. What they've done is they've come up with this scenario as a proof that there is no resurrection. They are trying to trap Jesus. And where they get this from is from Deuteronomy 25, which says, that a surviving brother of a childless, deceased man was obligated to marry his sister-in-law to provide for her needs and to preserve the deceased brother's family line. So they take Deuteronomy 25, this law from Moses, and they create this hypothetical situation where this woman marries this man and he dies and so following the law which they are very concerned about his brother marries her and he dies and then another brother marries her and rinse and repeat seven times and my first question was when I read this what is up with this woman you know this seems like a very dangerous woman I think if I was brother number five six or seven I would start asking some questions maybe it's just a really unhealthy set of brothers but this woman seems dangerous to me and the real question is 
Here's where they ask their question. So they present this whole hypothetical, okay, we're all about the law of Moses, we're following the law, let's say this happened. If a woman has seven husbands who all die, who will she be married to in this resurrection you believe in? And you can just see the Sadducee asking that. That is just the mic drop moment, you know. I'm sure he turns around, is high-fiving the other Sadducees because to them, this question totally disproved the resurrection. Their whole argument is that if we follow the Mosaic law and we do what it says, then the implications of the resurrection would be ridiculous. Therefore, there is no resurrection. And here's Jesus, not only talking about the resurrection, but talking about his resurrection. And they are trying to trap him. And I love Jesus' response in verse 24. I mean, Jesus is patience personified, is he not? I mean, he is loving and kind and gentle, but in this moment, he just tells them, you are wrong. I mean, typically, if you read through the gospel, typically Jesus responds to questions like this with a parable or he asks them a question in return or even in Zach's text last week when they're asking about paying taxes to Caesar and he says, let me see a coin and he holds it up in front of them and he says, whose inscription and likeness is on this coin? And they're all marveling at him in amaze at how wise and winsome he is and this week, Nope, just wrong, you are wrong, you're not even close, there's no questions, no witty comebacks, no parable. He just says, Sadducees, you're wrong. And if you look at verse 27, he ends with, not only are you wrong, you are really wrong, you're not even close on this one. As far as he is concerned, certain things are non-negotiable and the resurrection was one of them. And the good thing, about this ridiculous hypothetical question from the Sadducees is that it gives Jesus an opportunity to talk about point number two, a gloriously bright future. They are doubting the resurrection and it just tees Jesus up to talk about this. In verse 24, Jesus answers them with two reasons why they are wrong. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. First reason he tells them they are wrong is that they don't know the scriptures. What we hold in our hands is a written revelation from God, the Holy Spirit, where God reveals to us who he is and what he's done to save us from our sins and what he asks of us, how he asks us to respond. And because they don't know the scriptures, they don't know who their God is. 
That's why Jesus in a minute is going to show them from Exodus who God is, that he is the living God, that he is mighty and faithful and powerful. And they don't know their God because they don't know the scriptures. May it never be said of us that they didn't know the scriptures because then we don't know who our God is. They didn't know the scriptures. And the second reason he tells them they're wrong is because they didn't know the power of God. And these two things go together, don't they? The scriptures and the power of God. These things are not at odds with each other. They go together. Even the part the Sadducees hold to, the first five books of the Bible, are filled. They're just filled with the power and the glory of God. I mean, just think through the first five books of the Bible, God speaking everything into existence with his voice, creating man and woman as image bearers of him, flooding the earth, the miraculous birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, rescuing people from slavery in Egypt and the Passover, parting the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh's army, leading the people with a cloud by day and a fire at night, and then coming to Mount Sinai as the mountain is wrapped in smoke and consumed with fire because the Lord has descended on it, and then the tabernacle filling with the glory of God. It's filled with power and glory and you want to know who this woman is going to be married to. That's the scripture you're going to, Sadducees. You don't know the power of God. It is everywhere on display in scripture and around us. You don't know the power of God. And I know every time I say that, I'm hearing in my head, you don't know the power of the dark side. You don't know the power of God. Verse 25, Jesus says, here's the power of God. Look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead. Notice, it's not if they rise from the dead, it's when they rise from the dead. They neither marry or are given in marriage, and he's not saying there is no special or deep relationship with our spouse in heaven because this really isn't about marriage. I know we read this, we think it's a passage about marriage. It's not about marriage, it's about the resurrection. And so he's not saying we don't have special relationships. I think we do. What he's saying is that the resurrection is a whole new reality in the new heavens and new earth. And there's no need for marriage because there's no need to fill and rule and subdue the new heavens on earth because it's already being built for us by God and it's already gonna be filled with all those whose name is written in the book of the Lamb. There's something better. This, this marriage is just something that's pointing towards something better. We are heading towards the marriage of the bride with Christ, the church coming together in this marriage ceremony with our groom who's Christ. There's something better coming for us. And in verse 25, Jesus says, they are like angels in heaven. And I know that's, 
that's, that's hard to even imagine what it's going to be like. And maybe as you hear that, maybe you just skimmed over that, maybe you, know, you haven't thought about what Jesus is trying to say, maybe that doesn't excite you because you've been lied to your whole life by Hallmark about what angels are really like. I googled angels just to see what people are thinking about when they read this. Okay, we're gonna be like angels in heaven. Google, what am I gonna be like? You know, what is an angel? I mean, this first one I found, this first picture, is this little sweetheart telling you you're an angel. You know what I wanted to say to her? You know what you're not? You're not an angel, okay? That's not what an angel is like. Or here's a, a cute set of uh, sparkly angels for your next creative project. The description on it was cute and sparkly, something I hope not to be one day in heaven. <laughs> on the other side, you have these angel warriors, which honestly, I just thought this was pretty cool as a screensaver, so I thought, <laughs> okay, that's pretty cool, you know? like. I wouldn't mind that. Some of you may not like that. Finally, I had to show you this one uh, because it kind of looked like me a little bit, you know? <laughs> and uh, no one has ever thought of me as being angelic before, so Amen. this quite possibly might be what we're all looking like in heaven. I just, this one might be true. Listen, I, I, I thought I really wouldn't be longing for heaven if this is where we are going, you know? Uh, maybe, maybe as we hear Jesus say these words, maybe as Jesus talks about this new reality, maybe we need a greater vision of what heaven is gonna be like. Maybe that will change our perspective today on earth as we think about here's where we're going and here's what it's gonna be like. There's a whole new reality coming when we rise from the dead. Not if we rise, but when we rise, we will be like angels in heaven. What is that, what is that gonna be like? Maybe we need a greater vision of this new heavens and new earth and the power of God we will experience in the resurrection. And here's what the scripture tells us about this power, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the power of God. This is the scripture we need to know right now because it describes a bright, future Jesus is talking about. Everyone right now is talking about what life is going to be like after the coronavirus, and it's going to be a new reality. 
I mean, I've heard new reality so many times, unprecedented and new reality, every title of every article about this. There's a new economic reality, there's a new work reality, there's a new reality for schools. Listen, Jesus says there is a new reality coming, but it's not because of a virus or a sickness. It doesn't include masks and hand sanitizers. The new reality does not include social distancing. His new reality is filled with glory. It's filled with the presence of God beyond your wildest imagination. It's the kind of new reality where you don't ever want to go back to the old reality. You're not going, oh, I long for the old days. No, we love this new reality because it's so much better than what we're experiencing now. Let me ask you, How often do you think about heaven? How often do you dream and imagine and anticipate and long for heaven? A.W. Tozer says the church is constantly being tempted to accept this world as her home. But if she is wise, She will consider that she stands in the valley between two mountain peaks of eternity past and eternity to come. The past is gone forever and the present is passing as swift as the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz. Even if the earth should continue a million years, not one of us could stay to enjoy it. We do well to think of the long tomorrow. We do well to think of the long tomorrow. Let me encourage you, in the midst of all that is going on around us, sit down with your children and your grandchildren and your parents and your friends and your roommates and dream about heaven. Just. Just dream about it. Seeing the bright future God has for us, it brings perspective to today and hope for tomorrow because it is certain. It is coming. This present is passing so swift. This is the long tomorrow when the dead rise in Christ. And just just think about it. Just think about what Revelation 21 tells us about it. No more mourning or crying or pain. This week once again has been filled with a lot of mourning and a lot of crying and it's painful. It just hurts. You just, you just wanna go to every person you see hurting and you want to help them. You want to do something. To, to help them and communicate love to them. And I just thinking this week, don't you wish there was just somebody? I feel like everyone's looking for somebody. Don't you wish there was somebody who could come and could fix this and could heal everything and make everything better and fix all the wrongs? There is somebody, his name is God. And he's taking us to a place where this will come to pass where God says he himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can't wait to go to this place. 
Don't you just long to go to a place with no more pain, no more sin, no more evil, no murder, no more abuse, no more racism, no injustice, no pride, no anger, no self-righteousness, a place with no more sickness, no viruses, no coronavirus, no more lung cancer, no more back surgeries, no Guillain-Barre syndrome, no Alzheimer's. The bright future that we are heading for does not include COVID-19. It's not here to stay, its days are numbered. In a place with no more death. And death shall be no more. No more funerals, no more losing loved ones, no more obituaries. This week, New York Times on the front page read, U.S. deaths near 100,000 and incalculable loss. And on the front page, all they had was a thousand names. A thousand people who died, just one percent so far who died because of the coronavirus. Each one created in the image of God, each life with value and dignity and worth. And, and, and under each name, it had a little description of their life. And I just spent some time this week just reading through a thousand names, reading through the descriptions of their life, trying to put their life into a sentence. How would you summarize your life in a sentence? And what struck me is how many died without knowing Christ. And I thought that's the real tragedy the real tragedy is not what they died with this virus. The real tragedy is what they died without, knowing the joy of forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Listen, the Sadducees were quite wrong. They were quite wrong. There is a resurrection. And each person is headed for one of two eternal realities one of eternal glory with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, filled with joy and gladness, or the reality of an eternal hell, with no joy of the triune God, but only wrath rightly deserved for the sins against his holy name. And this new reality is coming fast. And I would be a fool if I did not urge you to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ who came to live for us, to die on the cross for our sins, bearing the wrath of God for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that for all time we could spend eternity with him in heaven in this gloriously bright new reality. And the way is open for all, but there's only one way in, it's through Jesus Christ. And when you turn from your sins and you trust in him, there's a new reality coming for you, a new heaven, a new earth with no more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness, and no more death.
Randy Alcorn says this, the best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. For Christians, the best is yet to come. This earth is not our home. There is a gloriously bright future. And for those that we love for and care for who don't yet know Christ, let's tell them. Tell them there is a place he has created for us and they are invited to come with us through Christ. Death does not have to have the final word for them because Jesus has conquered death and made a way for them. And for us as Christians, all we have is a bright future to look forward to. We have a bright hope for tomorrow. We look ahead with longing and anticipation and we get to dream and imagine and just, oh, let your imagination run wild with how amazing eternity is going to be. I don't think we need to, I don't think we can raise our expectations too high for heaven. I don't think we need to temper our desires. If anything, we need to raise them up. As a dad, I feel like it's my job to always manage expectations. I feel like that's my job, especially when we go on vacation. It's like title, dad, job description, uh, expectations manager. And that's what I feel like I'm doing the whole time. I mean, we're getting ready for vacation and they're excited and dreaming about all these fun things we're gonna do and we're gonna go swimming and biking and jumping off waterfalls and we're gonna go skydiving and we're gonna go snorkeling with sharks. We've never done any of these things, but it's what's gonna happen on vacation. And they're dreaming about every day filled with ice cream and candy, unlimited. And no, the word no doesn't exist on vacation, you know? Expectations are high. And my job as a dad is to lower the bar, you know, so everybody is happy. So I start saying things like, well, let's just hope it doesn't rain all day, you know? You little Debbie Downer over here. Listen, there's no managing or lowering or tempering. There's no lowering the bar when we think about heaven. There's no lowering the bar thinking, let's manage your expectations so we're not disappointed. There is no way you could be disappointed. You can raise the bar as far high as you wanna go and it's gonna be better than you can imagine. There is, there's no way we can out expect what God has prepared for us in eternity. Here's the thing though, we're not there yet. I know that's obvious, but we're not there yet. It's the pilgrim's progress from this world to that which is to come. We're not there yet, but we can have hope because we know point number three, our God will get us there. Our God will get us there. Look at verses 26 through 27. Remember the Sadducees only believe in the first five books of the Bible. It's why in verse 26, Jesus goes to the book of Exodus 
to show the reality of the resurrection and the power and faithfulness of God to get us there. And so in verse 26, he says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And he's referring to Exodus 3 where God appears to Moses from the burning bush. When God is revealing who he is and he's heard the cry of his people from Egypt and he's sending Moses to deliver them from slavery. And Moses says, when I go to them and I say, God has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? When they ask me, who is this God? What do I say? And God says, tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's saying to them, tell them that the covenant I made with Abraham centuries before is still intact. You go and you tell them, I have not forgotten about you. Tell them, I hear your cry. Tell them, I remember you. Tell them, my promise stands and nothing can stop my promise. He says, I am the I am. He has always and will always exist. He has no beginning and no end. And when he enters into a covenant relationship with you, like he did with Abraham, he is faithful to it forever. Notice how he says it in the present tense. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's saying, even though Abraham is gone and Isaac is gone and Jacob is gone, they are still alive. I am still their God. I am still with them because the promise doesn't die when they die. It continues on. And when I make a promise to you, I am the I am. I will be faithful to my promise and I will get you there. He says, I'm coming for you, and remember the promise I made to Abraham, I have not forgotten it. And in Christ, God has made a promise to us. It's in the blood of his own son, sealed, written on us, written in the book of the Lamb, and God says, I will not forget my promise. And death cannot stop my promise from coming true. D.L. Moody famously said on his deathbed, Soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe it for a moment. I will be more alive than ever before. The point is death cannot end this relationship. God is not gonna make a promise to you. Make these covenant promises and then let death have the final word. He is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living because he is the living God. God has been, is, and will always be faithful to his promises. And what's amazing about this text is in just a few days, 
The Sadducees' belief that there is no resurrection is seriously going to be tested. This conversation takes place on Tuesday of Holy Week. On Friday, Jesus will be tried and tortured and crucified. And on Sunday, the women are going to go to the tomb and they're gonna hear the angel say, he is risen. The resurrection is a certainty because Christ has risen from the dead and the Bible calls him the firstborn from the dead, which means there's more coming, including us. And this is what Jesus says to us today from Revelation 1. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And though the present is dark, after many trials, battling evil and demonic forces, battling discouragement and despair, battling worldliness and the deceiver and the accuser and his own doubts, Christian finally comes to the celestial city and listen as he unexpectedly finds a river that he must cross to get there. It says a look of determination filled Christian's face as he and Hopeful stepped into the waters. At first, he kept his eyes on the gates of the celestial city and the bottom of the river seemed firm. His feet were hardly wet, but then he looked down to the water and suddenly he remembered Apollyon's charge that he had been disloyal to Emmanuel. And he remembered all the times that he had left the path and then the river seemed to rise up against him in foaming waves, and he felt the bottom slip away. Desperately, he looked up to the city, but a mist had come up from the river and hid it from him. This is the river of death, he cried. And then he fell under the waters into darkness and horror. Hopeful struggled to pull Christian's head above the water. I shall not see the land of the celestial city, Christian sputtered. Do not despair, cried Hopeful. I see the gates already and the shining one standing on the shore to receive us. He pulled Christian through the waters. It is only for you that they wait, insisted Christian. You have been hopeful since I have known you. And you as well. Be of good cheer. Remember, when I pass through the waters, thou art with me. Thou art with me, repeated Christian. Thou art with me. And he remembered the owner's promise. The waters stilled and the river bottom came back under his feet. The mist cleared and Christian saw the gates of the celestial city again. Together, Christian and Hopeful waded across the rest of the river and reached the shore of the other side. And when they came out of the waters, they felt that their bodies had changed. They were light and new and strong. All that was mortal had been washed away in the river. And I will let you 
read the rest of Bunyan's description of the celestial city that we are headed towards. Fear not, thou art with me. God has a future for you brighter than you could ever imagine. And God himself will get us there. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you this morning for the promise and the hope that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Pray for every person here this morning, every person at home watching this on the live stream that you would fill them with hope today. Hope today that a bright future is coming in Jesus Christ. Hope today that you are building a place for us, a perfect place with no more crying and no more pain and no more sin and no more death. Fill us, Lord, as we have cried out today. Fill us with your spirit and fill us with hope. And we pray for our friends and our neighbors and for those here today who do not know the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, open their eyes, open their hearts, give them new hearts to believe that they may be with us for all eternity. We wanna take everybody with us to this new place, Lord. That's our goal and our desire. So save them, Lord, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.